There was a fun day when actually Pip started reading that file and it couldn't find a section that it uh, considered was, um, well, mandatory in, uh, by Project Tomal. So it was refusing to install any packages in your virtual environment. So any, any black user for a day or two uh, was unable to use Pip. Welcome to the PyBytes podcast, where we talk about Python, career, and mindset. We're your hosts. I'm Julian Sequeira. And I am Bob Beldebos. If you're looking to improve your Python, your career, and learn the mindset for success, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back, everybody, to the PyBytes podcast. This is Bob Beldebos. I'm here with Wukash Langa and uh, Bill Fry. And uh, we're back with an exciting episode to learn all about Wukash's background, what he's doing in the Python space. Um, so yeah, let's let's get started. Welcome. Uh, how, how are you doing? Yeah, glad to be here. I'm I'm doing very well. So uh, yeah, very happy to have this uh, invitation um, yeah, and talk a bit about uh, what we're doing at the moment. It's an exciting time for Python. Indeed, indeed. So to kick it off, I think most people are familiar with your name and what you do, but just in case, maybe you want to introduce you a bit to the audience. And uh, we always start with a win of the week, if you have one. Could also be right. a previous week, but something cool that's that you achieved. Cool. Uh, so um, like I'm Lukas Langa. I uh, um, started contributing to Python in 2010. And then I contributed for eight years. Nobody knew who I was, even though I had like, you know, a few peps under my name. Uh, and then I, out of frustration, wrote a um, small order formatter that I, I wanted um, for Facebook, where I worked at the time to use. Uh, and that suddenly started being extremely popular. So suddenly everybody knew me as the guy that created Black. Uh, and... Around that same time, I got uh, you know this um, invitation to be a release manager of Python. So I started doing that and being kind of you know public on Twitter about how release the, the release process works and 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 so on and so on. Uh, so now, yeah, like I guess uh, there might be more people knowing uh, my name, but um, like yeah, until pretty recently that wasn't the case. Uh, like back in 2018, I remember talking to Hinek Slavak about like, hey. How do you get a thousand followers on Twitter? Like a thousand followers, that would be something, you know? That means you're notable. Yeah, so it wasn't that long ago. Uh, these days, I'm working as the CPython developer in residence for the Python Software Foundation. Uh, we just managed to hire another one. So there's going to be two of us uh, starting January, which is very exciting. Uh, it transforms my kind of, um, you know, lone gig into a team. So uh, it's going to be pretty cool. That's awesome. Is that also your win? Oh yeah. Uh, so like that win, like would would be like you know um, a, a month ago or so. Like you know, it took a while uh, to get right. Like the win of this week would probably be uh, actually getting the coverage that I talked about, like in my own podcast about uh, you know, like okay, like a little context. Uh, it is very hard to cover, um, you know, okay, well, to gather test coverage for the standard library because coverage libraries themselves use the standard library. So they import the things that you want to measure coverage of, which means the coverage is not going to be, uh, you know, correct. Like the numbers are going to be skewed. So there used to be a hack that Brett Cannon devised like a long time ago, like that allowed us to use coverage.py 
uh, for this purpose, but that hack stopped working. So in, instead of coming up with another one, like, you know, for 3.13, I'm like, well, let's just make a proper way of hooking into the interpreter very early on so we can start gathering coverage for stuff that includes the standard library. And like that that thing I actually did, uh, like, well, like the hook I did at the sprint, but this week I actually made the coverage part of this work, which um, was like a little of an unknown because um, like what we are also doing with the tests now with the standard library is to encourage everybody to use worker processes to gather coverage. First of all, because most of people, even using containers, have more than one core available, uh, meaning it's going to be way faster to run tests if you run them with multiple workers. But more importantly, um, the tests are just more predictable and more stable if there are worker processes uh, dedicated for running tests. Uh, and those processes are separate from the kind of main test runner process that gathers all the results. So we never had support for test coverage in that scenario where you had worker processes, uh, you know, kind of do their own thing. And then we didn't have anything that would summarize all those partial results and gather them in a way where we can present them. So now we do. Um, so yeah, that would be the win of the week, I guess, for me. Nice win. And I think you speak about it on your podcast, right? And is it yes, yeah, time? Just, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly right. Uh, it's a new podcast. It's one episode. I hope there's going to be more. Uh, yeah, like I'm going to I'm gonna claim a win when we get like to uh, 10 episodes. Like so far, like Pablo Galindo, uh, the release manager of Python 3.10 and 3.11, had this idea like, well, we should talk more about like what the internals look like and whatnot. So he invited me to co-host with him. And I was very excited because like, you know, kind of, I was thinking it would be nice to have something like this, but I didn't really have an idea who I would team up with. So it, when when he reached out, I was like, "Well, perfect. That is uh, that is flattering." And also, I was actually excited to do this. So uh, we used the core sprint that happened uh, in Brno at the beginning of the month uh, to just kickstart it. And you know, so far so good. We'll see. Cool, Bill, your turn. Sure. So. Uh... For, there's, for those unfamiliar, Black's a, as you said, a very well-known auto-formatter for um, Python now. I'd say it's really become kind of the de facto standard. Um, so you mentioned before that you started writing it out of frustration. So I'd be curious to know, like, what inspired you? Like, there were specific things that frustrated you. And then how, bit, how about how it operates to get the job right. done? Well, uh it is not something you should be doing in 2018, let alone 2023, Charlie, uh, to start a new auto formatter. Um, but you know, kind of um, people need uh, auto formatting uh, like for kind of consistency when they're working in large organizations, right? And open source is a kind of weird, op uh, you know, organization as, uh, at the same time, right? Like, you know, you don't really think about this, but when you have maintainers and you have a ton of drive-by contributors who only want to fix their own thing. Uh, some of the processes that are very valued at large companies are even more important, right? Um, so the attempt at Facebook to kind of, mm, well, remove the bike shedding from code reviews um, was done like way before Black. Like we mm, tried to adopt uh, Autopep 8 and then we turned, you know, like we understood that this kind of partial approach of only fixing what is raising lint errors isn't really particularly good because it produces files that have 
super inconsistent style, like when you're reading uh, the, the the file afterwards. Um, and you read code more than you write. Um, so we actually saw this as a, uh, you know, kind of um, as a flaw where um, the file in time just got less and less consistent. So perfection, less important than consistency. So we tried to adopt VAP, um, which was already an established uh, Python formatter at the time, you know, under the Google banner. So, you know, kind of it had some form of validation through that as well. I even contributed to this since like some of the code style that Facebook wanted, like was different from what YAP allowed us to do. So I had like some uh, changes to it that were approved, you know, they were part of YAP. Um, but the app is using like dynamic programming and this kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of approach where it will calculate a number, which this number is your dissatisfaction with how a, log, a line looks like. And you can uh, influence how that number is calculated by just saying, oh, if I have uh, this uh, closing parenthesis hanging on there, like that is worth 50 points of dissatisfaction and so on and so on. So you have like uh, uh, all sorts of parameters. Uh, it calculates the dissatisfaction with the line and it tries to reformat it so that the number is as slow as possible. Right? And then using dynamic programming that actually finishes in finite time. So, you know, kind of it's a brilliant algorithm. Um, it is, you know, pretty impressive. It works and, you know, it actually produces code that looks uh, sensible. But the problem is obviously you have this large configuration file where you can uh, configure all those toggles. And those are very kind of... Um, you know, granular. So you can influence a lot of the formatting. And what we um, kind of discovered very quickly was that the bike shedding moved from uh, the reviews to the configuration file. And the reason why was uh, that there were always some edge cases that were very, you know, suboptimal. Uh, so when we changed the toggles just a bit to fix some suboptimal case, very often that would work. It would fix that particular case, but it would break other uh, formattings that were perfectly fine until now. Uh, suddenly they stopped being produced in a way that people liked. So after some point, we just, you know, claimed, well, defeat. We just said, well, there's no way we can roll this out across the entire company. So the rollout was partial and slow and painful and whatnot. Um, so at some point I said like, you know, I don't really need this to be beautiful. Like uh, most of Python code at Facebook at the time was actually configuration. Like there was an entire um, separate repository that stored configuration, not in JSON, not in, you know, some other format, but in Python. And that Python was kind of declarative and that was later um, compiled to JSON files like and everything, including your fridge, reads JSON. So everybody's happy with that. But you don't want to actually write JSON as a human. So Python was used for that. And it was like over 20 million lines of code on that alone. Um, so I, I said, like, we just need something that is very reproducible, like very kind of, you know, uh, JSON-like, honestly, because those are just nested data structures. We just want them to just look sensible. So how hard can it be? Like, obviously, it is very hard. Uh, I had like a first kind of, you know, um, well, test alpha version that I wanted to release for my birthday. But obviously, like every deadline, like you're going to miss like in software. So I missed it by a week, but it was Pi Day. So that was also perfect. I uh, I released it and I just, you know, thought that maybe a few people will just say like, you know, okay, nice. And that's going to be it. But by next day, 
that was 500 stars on GitHub, you know, like Twitter was talking about it. Kenneth writes, you know, kind of at the time was like, oh yeah, the new request version is going to be reformatted with that. And I was like day one of this alpha thing that was quite different from what you know currently as black. So um, for whatever reason, it struck a nerve. Like the readme was really about like, hey, this is not going to be configurable. There's just one style, um, like, you know, kind of just run it and forget it. It's going to be consistent. It's going to do a bunch of things that are different from other formatters, but at least, you know, you can explain how the tool arrived at those decisions. And through that, you can just forget about the bike shedding. Amazing. So you think that... Fascinating. Yeah, that lack of configuration contributed to its initial success that people just had a tool they hadn't, they were not really having to worry about too much config. It was just run it and it worked. Is that, you think, part of the success or, or something else as well? Yeah, well, I mean, like there were, there were, I think, a few things that contributed to the early success. Like the lack of configurability was one of those because it was really like, you know, kind of, the tool is called black, the code style is called black. There's like very little that you can do about, you know, changing how it configures, uh, how it formats things. Like the, the one thing that I uh, had there from day one, because I knew like it would be a lost battle to try to like figure any number would be, um, you know, the line length, right? Like what is the line length to which black is going to configure things? And I just arrived at like... 80 plus 10%. And the way I arrived at it was um, back before auto formatting on Facebook, we had this uh, kind of rule that we're going to just format to 80 characters, right? So we would obviously have a linter rule that would say, oh, you, uh, you're you at 81. Uh, so sorry, you have to go back to your uh, diff and you have to change your patch because, you know, it's 81 characters per line. Like, uh, Ter- terrible crime. Uh, you should rethink your career at the at the company. Eighty one characters is obviously <laughs> obviously not allowed. Like you know, what were you thinking? Um, so you know, this was annoying a lot of people, me included, because very often like this really didn't matter, right? You know, and especially in like configuration or whatnot. Like obviously, we didn't want to have lines that are one hundred fifty, but if it's eighty or eighty one. Especially that, you know, kind of Raymond Hettinger had this uh, talk about like beyond pep8 where he says like, well, honestly, with Python, where a lot of code ends up with classes and inside methods, and then you have an if, and then you have a try except. So you lost so many levels of indentation that you don't really have any space to write any code anymore. So 80 or really 79, as pep8 says, like is really like a little too narrow, just just 90-ish would already be much better. Uh, so like what I thought about was how you're driving on a highway, right? And then the speed limit is 65, but like you're driving 72 next to a police car, like, and everybody's happy. They're not going to stop you. They're not going to just waste anybody's time. Like, you know, just because you're doing like a few miles over uh, the limit, like, yeah, try 88. And then like, people are going to be like, no, 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 that's too, way, too, too many. But, you know, like if, if you're just going just a few miles above the speed limit, that is considered reasonable. So I thought, well, so let's do a lint rule where it's going to st- still tell you, okay, the limit is 80 and you uh, went over but only if you go over 10%, right? So if uh, if you went like 83, it, it won't uh, trigger, right? It won't tell you like, oh, like you terrible person, like it's it's actually 80 because it's a waste of time, all right? So only after you actually made a more, you know, kind of visible, uh, well, uh, kind of, you, you extended the line too visibly, too, too long, 
then it will tell you that the actual rule is 80 and it's been all along, right? Like go back to the drawing board. Uh, so once we started auto formatting, like I was like, well, so what is the number I should be auto formatting to? Obviously 80, like we already know it's a little too, too narrow and it's going to just produce like those annoying uh, shorter lines that have a lot of nesting in them. Um, so I actually did a run um, over the entire code base of Facebook with like 80, 81, 82, 83, 84. I tried all of this uh, to see how many lines will this produce. And by like 79 and 80, like the number was like X. And obviously you see like the, the lines shrink, uh, the number of lines shrink as you allow for longer lines. But what I noticed is like around like 89-ish, right? Like it was like, well, at that point, the difference is still like, you know, shrinking, but it's no longer such a cliff. It's it's essentially, you know, um, it doesn't matter because if your data structure is very nested, you would have to have 200 for this line to be just one line. So obviously it's going to still be, uh, you know, split into multiple lines. But it actually turned out that, Raymond's, you know, kind of intuition that comes from like, you know, decades of experience, like was correct that 90-ish is, is, is actually fine. So I just used what people already were, you know, kind of using at the company, which is like this 80 plus 10% as like the cutoff line that we're going to be um, by default formatting to. And also I thought like, this is such a ridiculous number that like if people actually want to change it, they will because, you know, like obviously the default is crazy. So, you know, people are going to be changing it. Um, but actually most people didn't like including uh, established projects like Django, which was uh, formatting to 120 before. When they adopted black, they were like, meh, let's just use the default and they switched to 88. And, you know, if that was... Um, that was very surprising for me to see that a lot of people really just value the fact that, okay, the tool tells you what to do. Now we don't have to argue about it. Let's just let it do what it, uh, do its thing. Cool. Yeah. So we had a, we had a question about primary technical hurdles, but uh, from the sounds of it, obviously making a, an out of formatter is a complex job, but it seems that definitely one of the challenges was to really get the defaults or the config uh, default option config options figured out then right <laughs> right so uh like to be clear you know kind of um sometimes people think like oh like the style of black is like the favorite style that i personally have as the original author like so that's not true right like you know a lot of the the cases where uh you know the formatting does something or something else like just stem from what we've seen like at a big corp corporation you know like what, what are those things that otherwise cause people to make mistakes? Uh, so for example, like the sad face, right? So like the closing parenthesis with the colon uh, that, you know, kind of delimits the signature from the body of the function. Uh, that was uh, made so that you don't waste any additional uh, indentation levels, but also for it to still be visible that, okay, there is, a, you know, separation between the block. Uh, and if you're using type annotations, the return type annotation will make that closing uh, parenthesis and colon look way less weird because there's going to be a type annotation right there, you know, with the arrow and everything. Uh, but some of those things like, you know, kind of do look unfamiliar when you're still starting out. And uh, last I've heard, like Guido still doesn't like the sad face. Like he still thinks like that there, that should probably just be explicitly disallowed in pip8 which it isn't at the time uh, when I created this. So uh, like, 
as far as I could tell, and with my reading of Pep 8, like we were perfectly compatible with uh, the wording of uh, of that Pep. Um, and you know, kind of obviously, some of those things are really subjective. You know, you you have things that you like, you have things that you dislike. Some of the defaults, uh, like standardizing on double quotes, are still pretty controversial. You know, like there's a uh, a lot of kind of heated arguments about, you know, like uh, that versus the other. And the fun thing about this is like my original intuition was to use single quotes because it just seemed like those are a little easier to type like on an US English keyboard layout. So yeah, why not? And then we had an open issue on the um, Black Tracker and um, there it turned out that there were... um, people with sensible arguments for actually keeping double quotes as the default, uh, since it creates more consistency when you're using, uh, you know, uh, apostrophes inside the, mm, inside the string, which is way more common, it turns out, than using uh, double quotes uh, inside a string and so on. So uh, that can still be dug out, like you can still see the issue on the tracker. Um, I was convinced to like flip the default because it just, Turned out that, okay, this actually, I have good arguments now to uh, use the double quotes versus single quotes, whereas the only thing that I can say about the single quotes, and this is something that people still like, you know, kind of um, sometimes point at me is like, that's what the mm, default wrapper is using. So if Python is choosing single quotes, so should we. And I'm like, well, it's just some default that was actually chosen by a person who implemented this, you know, 30 years back, like probably Guido. And it stayed that way. Like, you know, it's not like Python, the interpreter is conscious, like, you know, so it chooses this because it likes this better or this particular sequence of bytes is is, is better than, than, than another one. Um, so yeah, like that wasn't really like a strong argument for, for me. Um, but, you know, kind of, kind of sure, like some of the defaults and some of the formatting uh, had to be kind of chosen how we should do those things. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work on the same floor as the uh, maintainer of the prettier uh, or the formatter for JavaScript. So we had like uh, quite a few conversations about like, you know, how he allows things, how he disallows things, uh, like uh, things that he actually broke and allowed people to configure. And now uh, he was unhappy about it because I essentially, you know, revived the bike shedding about some particular thing that wasn't configurable originally in, uh, in prettier. And in fact, Originally, Black didn't even support any configuration in files, right? You had like, you know, those uh, two or three command line options. And then if you wanted to have configuration, you had to use Toxini or whatever else like that you had in your CI or pre-commit to put like something non-standard there. Um, That was before, that was because there wasn't really a good, uh, you know, um, common place to put configuration in. At the time, people were like already... Set up CFG is outdated. We shouldn't be using this. Those are any files. Those are, uh, you know, ugly and those should be, you know, deprecated. Um, and then I talked with um, Ian Cordasco, who was uh, at the time the maintainer of Flake 8. And he told me, well, we are, we agreed to support a few configuration files. And that was a mistake because now the precedence rules are unclear and they keep getting uh, error reports about like weird behavior of Flake 8. But that's just a consequence of the precedence rules for uh, the configuration file um, being really complex. So don't do this mistake, Wukash, right? Uh, Like, you know, don't have any configuration. And if you do, like, just choose one file. 
So I chose by Project Tomo when that arrived. Um, and I got told that, like, you know, don't worry, this is going to be the default configuration file for everything soon enough. Like, and now five years later, uh, maybe it's starting to be true. Uh, it certainly wasn't at the time. Uh, and there was a fun day when actually Pip started reading that file and it couldn't find a section that it uh, considered was, um, well, mandatory in uh, by Project Tomo. So it was refusing to install any packages in your virtual environment. So any any black user for a day or two, uh, was unable to use PIP. Uh, and people were really upset, like, you know, like black overstepped. But I was literally invited to use the configuration file when it was first introduced. And I feel like it did help its adoption to some extent as well. Ever bought a course and saw zero results? I've definitely been there. Uh, there are very great courses and materials out there. But if you don't implement, nothing will change. But with PyBytes Developer Mindset Coaching, it's a whole new game. In just 12 weeks, you transform from a Python intermediate to a pro. How? Through one-on-one -on -one coaching, building real applications, and mastering advanced Python techniques. Our hands-on approach isn't just about learning, it's about doing and achieving. Get certified, boost your career, and join an empowering community. Apply for the PyBytes PDM program now. Check out the link in the description below. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like you can't get away from bike shedding because the, the bike shedding went to like the discussion of quotes. So no matter what, there will be bike shedding. Um, yeah. And I will never be able to unsee the sad face now. But I'm curious... Um, so obviously you wanted to have minimal configurations, but, and I know I've seen issues opened on the black repository where people want a certain thing, or they think it should be formatted a different way. How have you handled essentially saying no to people as ideas have been thrown in? Because that's a hard thing to do for a lot of folks. Right. Yes. Um, well, Initially, the scope of the project was narrow enough that I was rather comfortable like saying like no to um, feature requests because simply they didn't uh, play well with other things that we needed to, to support. So for example, like we talked about the reasons why Black was initially adopted by you know users who already had access to other auto formatters, right? So like why would it, why was it? Uh, um, suddenly popular. Like one reason was that uh, I very initially just decided like a thing that we need to have is for Black to run twice every time on every file that you have. And the reason why is that if it changes its mind to format a file another time a different way, that means there's a bug somewhere there. And in this case, you know, as the Zen of Python tells us, like we should refuse the temptation to guess. We should just, you know, kind of and just throw an error and saying like, you're trying to use a tool that sucks. Like this file is showing you an error, please report this error. So we had this kind of check for consistency in formatting that it actually arrives at a stable formatting and it doesn't change its mind, which Yap did. Like Yap did change its mind. You could format a file, it would be happy with it, and they would format it again and it would reformatted to a something else. So obviously like, you know, kind of there were some stability problems there. Um, but worse yet, 
uh, you could arrive at a formatting that changed the meaning of the program. And that is terrible. That is not what you want to have. Like you, you, you care about some comments there and some white space there, but you want the code to mean the same thing. So from day one, Black also had this AST check where before and after were actually, you know, like the AST trees were built and we were checking that they are exactly the same. So uh, as, a, as a tool, like you could just run it on a million lines of code and know, okay, this is still going to behave the same. Like you don't have to actually look at this gigantic diff, like you can just assume there's not going to be any problems. Um, and this is how it operates to this day. Like we planned to maybe flip the default at some point, but then we had MyPyC, which made black like over twice as fast compared to just pure Python. Um, so we just kept it. And, you know, people do value this sort of safety of the tool uh, where they know like it's not going to screw up your code. Um, so like very many changes that people wanted, uh, for black to make, which it doesn't, um, were changing this contract. Like if you changed, for example, how like, you know, kind of the um, insides of a string, uh, looks like that actually changes the EST. So now we'd have to have some sort of, uh, you know, kind of special handling for this and for, Everything else, like we kind of were keeping, you know, um, things really simple to allow for this check to continue. But there was one um, one place where we finally kind of decided, okay, that we need to change because it's just too suboptimal. And that was, um, you know, indentation of doc string contents. So for doc strings alone, if you are first adopting black, and you are adopting it coming from, say, the Google code style that uses two space indents. What you're going to see, like, well, or what you were seeing in the past, was that it would nicely reformat everything and leave your doc strings unaligned now, ugly. They would be visually aligned to uh, indentation levels that Black is not using, uh, which is, you know, two characters versus four. So now you would have to go and by hand reformat every doc string to actually fit the thing. So what we did instead is like, okay, we can actually do only the left indentation in doc strings so that it matches what we expect. Um, and then in the AST check, we would have this transformation done on the left and on the right side. So like, you know, kind of the AST check is still effective. But for doc strings alone, which we, you know, kind of judged, it's a special case that is kind of pragmatic to break the rule there. Uh, we changed the default because, you know, there were very many kind of bug reports about this. Like, hey, we're trying to adopt black, but, you know, it's not doing this re-indentation in a place that is very painful to do manually now because there's very many doc strings in our code base. So, you know, it's always a balance, right? Like you cannot uh, easily give in to... Um, feature request, uh, because now the, not only it's the maintenance uh, burden for everybody else, but more importantly, you know, kind of you are now kind of betraying everybody else who kind of, you know, trusted you with the defaults, right? Now you're like now second guessing the default, uh, and so on and so on. So like, you cannot easily give into this, but also it's a balance. You cannot be super stubborn on things that uh, are obviously needed, uh, and obviously are, you know, still controversial. That sounds challenging indeed. <laughs> and that also leads to the next question. So now with uh, Black has, having cemented its place in the Python ecosystem, widely used, uh, a lot of 
eyeballs on it, right? And and usage. Um, apart from the balance you just mentioned, what are some other challenges you have had maintaining um, this project? And including maybe moments of burnout as that happened, because I guess a lot of that maintenance fell on you. And then moving forward, um, have you been able to, I mean, are you still actively maintaining it or have you delegated parts of it? And, and if so, how has that worked? Right. Uh, so in, initially in 2018, like I was pushing it like very hard, right? Obviously, like, you know, kind of uh, uh, not in terms of like marketing or whatever, but simply like, you know, the initial release got way more popular than I expected. So uh, in, there were a lot of expectations from people who are close to me, you know, kind of people wanted the other formatter to succeed, but they had uh, real problems with it. So they reported issues and I wanted to solve them. So there were very many releases. I pushed them out, like, you know, sometimes three times per month. Um, you know, like those were alphas, so we could just change a lot of things. Uh, but by 2019, uh, I quit Facebook. So I was here in Poland, you know, kind of not having any job at the time. You know, I had to kind of decompress after working for a big corporation for uh, over five years. Um, and I kind of started, you know, uh, some of the deeper changes in Black that were needed to solve some more fundamental uh, limitations. And we arrived at a release made in October. There were already very, like, way few releases there uh, since I had to be more careful with adoption being wider. Like, you cannot just willy-nilly, like, change things now because people would be complaining every time they upgrade. Uh, so we arrived at a release in October that turned out to be very successful. Like, people are very happy with the 1910 release. Um and you know, and uh, and then I had like this kind of huge block where I wanted the tool to be marked as stable. But what that would mean is we would no longer make like massive changes to its formatting style, since like not only the tool but the code style is called black. Like it's supposed to essentially be predictable. That was the entire point. So if there are any things that we want to change, we need to change them now. And there were a few things like, you know, kind of that were listed as issues that we were like, oh yeah, we need to handle this before we mark this as a stable tool. Uh, so I kind of had a few unsuccessful attempts on, on dealing with those since, you know, kind of um, that's one of those cases where you're fixing something for somebody and somebody else will be unhappy, right? So, you know, kind of there were no longer any low-hanging fruits there. Um, and at some point I could just, I just got kind of quite paralyzed at this, like, you know, what is, what, what does it mean for us to release a stable version? Like I, I'm not really able to reach the point that I wanted for the stable version, but at the same time, there's a lot of pushback for this to be still beta since, uh, the versioning I used, like used, um, the B instead of a final dot in the version, like just to mark that this is a pre-release product. And that was breaking some tools, like some kind of virtual management tools. I think Pipenv was a little offender where you actually had to use some additional command line option for it to even install Black. Uh, so people were upset about the B and the name. Uh, you know, again, if we even had like this internal joke where like B stands for black in the version number. So it just has to be there forever. Uh, but, you know, kind of uh, at some point, I, I was like, we need the stable version, but I'm unable to really just provide it. And then COVID hit. So obviously it was a big distraction for everybody for a year. 
uh, and nobody was really kind of you know pushing hard on on, on us to finish the tour. Um, we did, uh, I think, only one release over 2020, and that fixed a bunch of issues uh, that people had. So a lot of people migrated, but some still stayed on the 2019 version. Uh, and to this day, like there is a holdout group that is just like, yeah, that's the vintage version. We were gonna use this for as long as we can. Good luck because it doesn't support the match statement. So you know, it might might not really. Uh, have like, you know, a long shelf life uh, left in it. But, you know, kind of the 2020 version, uh, it was, uh, I think it was August that we released it. But like at that point, it wasn't so much as I, I like that I was burnt out from like maintenance kind of as a, you know, like influx of issues or whatever. It's simply, I couldn't overcome my own kind of expectation of what the stable version means versus what I could deliver there. Um, and um, what I did right, though, was um, very early on when I saw a, a few people, you know, just being active on the tracker and whatnot, and they were helpful and I trusted them. I just gave them the commit bit. They could just make changes to the project. And um, by 2020, we actually had like a really nice group of maintainers. And to this day, like they're actually doing the day-to-day -day maintenance of uh, the project. Like I'm very grateful uh, to have them. Uh, there's Yella, there's Cooper, like, you know, there's Schultz, um, like awesome people. I, I, uh, I'm very happy that, you know, kind of they, they joined the project. And by early 2021, like they had the Zoom call with me saying like, hey, yeah, we have to just, you know, kind of drop the bullshit, like drop the dreams of a perfect stable release and just, you know, kind of do what we can to fix the rest of the problems that we have, but actually release something that we're going to mark as stable. So, you know, kind of, uh, we managed to reach that point. Um, I was very happy with this, uh, because, you know, kind of some, some of those things that we needed to arrive at was like, there's going to be always mm, changes in formatting. That's what changing the tool means. Even if you're bug fixing, what are you bug fixing? You're, you're bug fixing some defect in formatting. So there's always going to be some changes. So how do we protect people from like just having changes every release. Um, and we um, kind of arrived at this idea of additions where every year we would have like some maybe larger changes that were anticipated by the community that people wanted to have through uh, bug reports. But within a year, like you're only going to have minimal changes there, like introduced with bug fixes and whatnot. So if there's a new feature introduced, it's going to be uh, introduced a year from now. And you can test it today by just running black with dash dash preview so that you're going to see the um, code style from ne next year. Because it needs to kind of, you know, evolve. It doesn't evolve very rapidly. So don't get me wrong, it's not going to be a tool that formats things like more or less the same. But there might be changes, um, you know, and, and that un unblocked my kind of mental thinking about like what it means for us to be stable, but still be able to maintain the tool. Uh, so yeah, like, so the, the, the team I kind of unconsciously gathered, uh, helped me a lot with that. And to this day, like I mostly kind of appear to, you know, kind of untie Gordian knots and stuff like that. Like, so most of the actual work is made by, uh, by the team and, you know, some kind of contributors who come and go for just a smaller number of changes which I'm also very happy about, like, you know, Batuhan, like one of the mm, core devs of Python, I contributed like this uh, 
unholy hack that allowed us to use our LL1 parser to still uh, successfully format mm, files with the match statement, which uh, is a piece of grammar that, you know, kind of famously cannot be parsed with LL1 grammars. And yet we do this. Uh, there's a... Mm, there's an approach there that like, you know, kind of, unless you're um, ready for some, you know, kind of, well, let's call it a typical uses of parsers, you might not want to look inside the code that does this, uh, but it's been very successful. Like it uh, lets people to actually format the code just fine. Um, so yeah, like, you know, some of those uh, contributions by external people are very valuable to us. That's great. It sounds like um, the 2019 version might become the Python 2.7 of black if people just keep holding on to it until the bitter end um yeah do you have a feature real quick uh that you're just most proud of like one thing that really stands out for you in black and even if it's something that isn't really user facing just something that you were just like yeah this is <laughs> awesome uh well so this is no longer true in 2023, but originally when I created Black, like um, one thing that wasn't user facing but was very important to me was a solution to a question I was getting very often, which was like, "Can you just show me some some you know small program that like has everything done right?" So you know, kind of like it is, it has proper tests, it is properly documented, it has functions split like you know in sensible ways. It uses generators, it uses async IO, like it uses a bunch of other like you know kind of uh, modern things in Python, like type annotations and so on and so on. And every time somebody asked me this question, I was like. I don't really have a great example for you. So when, once I started Black, I'm like, people are going to look at it anyway. So I might just as well make it an example project. And, you know, kind of the initial versions, like I really kind of, you know, spent additional time to make sure that, you know, it was just one file. That was that was the kind of point. Like and for a long while, like I I stuck to this gun. Like the other maintainers were like, come on, we really have to split it. It's too 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 big now. Um, but it was, you know, kind of initially very important to me, like for this to be simple enough that somebody could open it in in the editor and you know just follow what is going on and see like, oh, this is how we are splitting functions so that they're generators and now we can consume them here and so on and so on. And this is how you type annotate generators, which you know was also like a popular question back in 2018. Uh, and so on and so on. So, you know, kind of one weird thing that mm, Black is doing was uh, that it is using AsyncIO for uh, multiprocessing. So, you know, to just allow you to format an entire folder of files, like, you know, like to the extent of your allowed, you know, cores on your uh, CPU uh, locally. And, you know, kind of I still consider the subprocess API of AsyncIO to be kind of the most elegant that we have in Python, since it allows you to actually just run more than one at the same time, like in a in a very, uh, you know, visible and predictable way. Uh, so I like that. Um, yeah, like another thing that is a little user facing, and I was proud because it was very selfish, it was extremely selfish, was that Black from day one was using a bunch of cute emojis. Like, okay, it would just break your heart when it, you know, kind of uh, couldn't reformat something because, you know, kind of uh, it was broken. So like report an error or it would just like, you know, like show you sparkles because it reformatted the file uh, successfully. So the reason I did that was because the first character of my first name is also a non-standard Unicode character. So if your terminal cannot, uh, you know, uh, show you an emoji it probably cannot show you my name as well so like that was that was a way for me to kind of you know kind of maybe force people a little to consider like unicode support in their terminals 
And we got uh, some, you know, very motivated people to report, you know, to us. They're like, no, you should drop the emojis. First of all, they're not serious. You know, this is a serious tool. And second of all, like this breaks on my old Windows terminal or whatever. Um, and yeah, I pushed back on this um, because I really needed this uh, to be part of the tool. I really, really needed like people to move to this world where Unicode is expected and it's widely supported. Um, and another example of exactly that is that inside the source code of Black, and that's still the case, there is uh, a, an empty set that I used for comparisons. And I just used the mathematical empty set uh, symbol to name the variable. And that was a deliberate choice. I needed to have a Unicode identifier inside the source code because, first of all, Black from day one was using itself to like you know like test some things. Uh, that was the simplest thing I could do. Like, does it reformat, you know, its own source code successfully and so on and so on. And so it was important there. Uh, but also like, I wanted to show people like, look, the identifiers might be a little more complicated than you, than, than you think. Uh, and in fact, like very early on when Charlie was doing uh, the um, rough formatter, which, uh, you know, kind of um, redoes what Black is doing only 30 times faster, right? I'm hearing. Uh like he discovered this because like that was like a, you know, thing that uh, actually didn't initially work for him. Uh, so, you know, kind of, haha, good job. Like this actually found a, a deficiency that is obviously now handled and everything is good. Uh, but yeah, like some of those things like, you know, left that, you know, that don't seem deliberate, that they sometimes are. That's funny. And thank you for doing what you did as far as making like Black a really great example. Because I personally didn't, I didn't know you intended this, but. I used it as a as a great reference to seeing how to break things up and just like as just reading great code because you can learn so much from that. So thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm um, happy it worked out for you. For sure. So changing gears a little bit, there's the guitar in the background there for anyone who's watching the video. And you are a um, pianist. Uh, has your like your musical training and musical background influenced your journey through programming or complemented it, or how has that interaction like worked for you? Well, I believe that um, everybody should have like, kind of like should stand on two legs, right? Like, so you should have like something else outside of your like one kind of fascination with programming or Python in particular and whatnot, uh, since there needs to be some balance. Like, you know, okay, very often for me, like the moments where I'm away uh, from like my particular task are the moments where I would arrive at a solution uh, to something, but also like, you know, kind of truth be told, like 80% of programming is just frustration, right? You know, like, and, and sometimes like that 80% is not evenly spread. So you might have like weeks on end that is just frustration. And obviously the remaining why do 20%. We, right? Why do we even do this, right? <laughs> yeah. So like the, 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 All the time. 20% um, is what actually convinces us to keep doing it because it's extremely rewarding, right? You know, kind of, uh, it is kind of something that you feel like you have control over, you have positive impact on the world, which like isn't an easy thing to do these days, it turns out. So, you know, kind of, yeah, obviously uh, we still do this, uh, but you know, kind of when you're in this ditch of this 80% that is just unrelenting, uh, it is nice to have somewhere to just, you know, step away and just do something else for a while. So, you know, kind of uh, there are very many, uh, Python people that I know who have some sort of hobby like this that they that they are serious about, like whether that's fitness or you know woodworking or, or you know having a farm or whatever else. Uh, for me, that thing is music. Um, you know, kind of I uh, 
I do produce some music, you know, like it's not, you know, something that I want to do a career out of, but, you know, kind of it's something that is like constantly on my mind um, to the extent that like I in fact have quite a extensive library of musical things that I write in Python to help me with that kind of, you know, a relaxing task, which sometimes finds things that I should fix or change or in, in Python as well. So those things kind of, you know, loop back uh, to each other. Um, but, you know, kind of in the end, I do feel it's mostly there for me to just have something, uh, somewhere to go. And I'm like, you know, kind of overwhelmed with the other part of my life. Right? Yeah, it sounds great for balance. I have the same with fitness. If I don't do the gym, then it becomes much harder. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And, and for me, um, it's been drums. been learning drums the past two years, so... Nice. Hitting things with sticks is always a great outlet. Very cool. Like, yeah, my son is also playing drums. So, so yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Family band. Very cool. Awesome. Well, um, thanks, Wukash, uh, for, for sharing all this insight. There are some uh, really nice details, even Easter eggs of the source code. Um, last question we have is about reading. Well, what are you currently reading? What, what book do you want to share? Uh, right. So I actually am currently reading two books and it's funny because one of them is music, one of them is uh, programming. So like the programming one is Hypermedia Systems. So it's uh, from the authors of uh, HTMX, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, because it turns out like maybe it's another case of GIF, GIF, and it's actually pronounced some, something else. But you know, kind of this very small library that you put in your HTML. So now like any any HTML element can issue HTTP requests and they don't have to be just get and post, um, which is a way for, you know, kind of traditional apps, like a traditional Django app to appear as if it was a single page application, right? Because you can do a lot of the dynamic things that otherwise you would use React for, uh, but in a way that is more kind of hypermedia first and, you know, kind of more natural to like an old timer like me who started with Django and, you know, kind of now it turns out like you can make applications that are uh, usably like indistinguishable from an SPA. Um, but, you know, kind of you write them in a more familiar style where you're generating HTML on the server side and transferring that instead of JSON. So, yeah, so that's on the programming side. Um, it's a very interesting book. I'm kind of like two thirds uh, through that now, I think. And the second one is by uh, Robert Fripp, the kind of the leader of King Crimson, uh, like a progressive uh, rock band from the 70s. They're kind of on and off across the years. So I'm not sure if it's still going or not at the moment. It's it's hard to tell, honestly. And he wrote this like thick book. Uh, it's called The Guitar Circle. And it's about guitar practice. Uh, but really, it just feels to me like, you know, I'm like third into the book that it's more... Uh, philosophical book about life and discipline. Uh, so so that's interesting. And, you know, kind of I'm reading the two kind of interchangeably since like hypermedia systems is is more like, you know, kind of straightforward programming where you have code examples and code and whatnot. And the guitar circle is not even straight about like, oh, this is the exercise you should be doing. Like it's more about like, this is what you should be thinking when you're exercising and so on and so on. Uh, and it has like a lot of kind of really you know, kind of bite-sized uh, quotes that you can just, you know, put somewhere like inspirationally or whatever. Uh, so, you know, kind of, um, it is a way different kind of book, but I enjoy both. Cool. Sorry, I didn't pick up the title of the first one. Hypermedia Systems. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it is definitely. actually available for free if you don't mind, you know, kind of reading uh, from our web browser uh, on just hypermedia.systems. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I need to read that because we uh, definitely use HTMX in uh, PDM in the coaching yeah. myself for my web apps, and it's amazing, right? You don't have to write JavaScript, which right. usually is a joy for Pythonistas. Exactly right. <laughs> Bill, are, we, are you, you reading anything? Not currently, just getting prepared for the new baby. So actually, I lied. We're reading a lot of baby books. <laughs> nice. so, also important. Yeah. Indeed. And uh, I'm actually on the Good Inside book still, which is one step further than they're getting to adolescence age. Yeah. <laughs> so handling mm. struggles and emotions. So, yeah. Cool. Um, well, Ukash, um, any final shout out or links where people can connect with you, um, preferably? We can link that in the show notes. Right. Well, like, um, I, I think I'm relatively easy to find. Uh, my email address is kind of public. My Twitter handle is public and I respond there. Uh, so yeah, like if you need to reach me for whatever reason, I'm available. Uh, yeah, like any other shout outs? Uh, PEP 703 has been just accepted officially by the steering council. So uh, Python 3.13 will have an option to be built without the global interpreter lock which is going to be a new future for us. Uh, we'll see if that works out in long term, but you know, the only way to find out whether this is something that we actually want and can handle is to allow experimentation with it, which is exactly what the steering council uh, intends to now do. Uh, so now we only need to make it work, but you know, obviously the hard part is going to be when 3.13 is out and the users will, uh, you know, be able to pick up the experimental build and actually try it out, whether it fixes anything for them, uh, whether they can make things faster and so on and so on. Uh, so yeah, like, you know, kind of, if you're interested in not maybe Python performance, but Python scalability, this is, um, you know, like definitely something that you should or could look into, uh, you know, like you can look forward to it. You can help because there's plenty of things we're going to have to be doing uh, with the interpreter. And if you're like, no, but like the C code that you're going to be touching, like that, that is way too scary. Uh, right. But also the standard library will have to ha be adopted like to a free threading environment. So, you know, kind of uh, there's plenty of opportunities for people to, uh, you know, contribute to Python these days. Um, in fact, like it's like a new kind of renaissance of like larger changes in the interpreter where between uh, 3.5, 3.6 and 3.10, like the interpreter was quite stable. There were changes in the, in the library and, you know, it was like some uh, more pointed changes like moving uh, coroutines from being regular generators to their own object and so on and so on. But, you know, like since Python 3.10, 3.11, 3.12 now, uh, like we see way deeper changes in the interpreter. So um, if you're kind of curious about contribution, like it's the kind of best time we've had in a decade uh, to start being really impactful in the project. Wow. Amazing. Cool. Bill, anything else from you? I'm good. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. Yeah. Right. Thanks uh, so much for joining us and uh, sharing. And uh, this has been amazing. So uh, yeah, thanks. it was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Lukash. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To hear more from us, go to pybyte slash friends. That is pybit, 
bit.ly.es slash friends and receive a free gift just for being a friend of the show. And to join our thriving community of Python programmers, go to pybytes slash community. That's pybit.es forward slash community. We hope to see you there and catch you in the next episode. 